Holly. Hey, Dave. What is going on on the What Difference Does It Make podcast today? You know, I should have been, I was fairly warned that you were going to ask me this question and I didn't have a prepared answer for you today. <laughs> you do realize we do this every week. I ask the same question and yeah, I don't ask for much. I'm going to come up with a list of prepared answers that don't sound prepared when I'm answering your question. Fun fact between the two of us, last night we went and saw a movie together, which we never do. Why didn't we say that? Why didn't I just say that without having to be reminded that something actually happened this week? We went to see see, uh, Annette, the Sparks Brothers movie. Not the Sparks Brothers movie. That's a whole different movie, which was (laughs) awesome. We also saw that together. We've We've seen the whole... Sparks ouvoir in less than a month. Good one, Dave. Yeah. Good. Good with your French too, because this one had a French director. Thank you. This yeah. one was, You've, yeah. You followed up on that. Very good. If you love Sparks, it's worth looking into. That's all I'll say about that. Now we turn to the Heartland and John Mellencamp and a book that's out by Paul Reese. He's legit. He was the editor of Q Magazine in, in the UK and Kerrang. Also wrote a couple of biographies on John Entwistle and Robert Plant. We had a great time talking with this Scott. Scotsman. Uh, this Scott. This fine oh, Scotsman. This fine Scotsman. Okay. Thank you, Holly. I don't want to, I don't want to offend the Scotsman. Since. I don't know if that's correct. It's I just what, what, what sounds right. Okay. So why don't we just get right into our talk with Paul Reese. He is the author of Mellencamp that is out now. And let's get into it on the What Difference Does It Make podcast. You all set? Are you ready to talk, Mellencamp? I certainly am, yeah. Okay, <laughs> wonderful. This book is, it's called Mellencamp. Simple. Is this an authorized biography? Do you know a book that um, Pete Owens Carlin did, the Springsteen book that he did? I think I'm vaguely familiar with that one. It, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's really similar to that in that he knew all about it. He's been, to the extent that um, I've interviewed members of his family, I've interviewed both his daughters, his brother, pretty much everybody that played, well, everybody that's in his band now and most people have ever played with him, ex-managers, all the rest of it. And then he and his dad supplied all the photos and book. So he's been as cooperative as he could be. He's seen the manuscript, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not officially authorized, but he's been very helpful and his management have been very helpful. So what is the difference? Because I know you've spoken to everybody, you know, I guess with his blessing, what's the difference between an authorized biography and what you're doing? Because I would say yours was authorized. Uh, I think it's, it's semantics. I, I think, I think should he ever decide to do it, it's exactly the same as the Springsteen one. He, uh, they cooperated and helped with that book. Uh, and then he wanted to do his own. So he did one short left. I, I think should John ever decide to do his own book, uh, I think it potentially makes it slightly uh, easier for him to do that if he if he's not authorized something before. So he can put the word on it on the cover. He can put that particular word on the cover. Yeah. All right. Well, after spending some time oh. with with Mellencamp and your book, I feel like he would never approve of of anything that that ever came out from anyone else except for for him. He's a he's a stubborn fellow. It uh, it seems like uh, who, who likes likes to do things his way. That's probably one of the reasons he's lasted as long as he has. He's you know he and one of the reasons he's I think so interesting. He, you know he walks to the beat of his own drum. I think possibly because you know he all the things that happened to him early in his career as he you know he's pretty honest about. It. He made all the mistakes you're going to make right up front. You know having his name changed, somebody sorting out his image for him, and all the rest of it. And I think you know he, he had to fight pretty hard to do things his own way. 
he's pretty determined and he has been pretty determined for the last 30, 40 years to do it exactly his way. What drew, how much did you know about him in advance of this? What drew you to him? I've been a, I've been a fan since Scarecrow way, way, way back in my youth when they just about invented the wheel. A guy at school had got hold of Jack and Diane. Uh, so that was the first time I heard him. And then, but the Scarecrow was the first time I, I really listened to him. And I'd, I'd been a fan since then. Been to see him when he played over here. But when I was on cue, round about the time of, he was just finished work on the No Better Than This record. And I, I'd met him before he'd come over to the cue award. So I'd met him. Um, but then I got, I got a chance to go and interview him in Bloomington and spent a couple of days with him. Uh, and I didn't realise how interesting he was. And if you sit and talk to him, what a, he's like a character out of William Ford. He's like a character out of American fiction. And I think that was the point. Realising what sort of character he was, I, I, it's in the book. You know, the first time I met him, he he, he, he was with a, he got a walking stick, this old Victorian cane. Uh, and he pulled a, a three-foot-long blade embedded into the top of this, which he pulled out and then wafted under my nose. And you just think this is the sort of guy... He's like a piece of fiction himself, so that that was kind of what drew me to wanting to tell his story. What were your impressions, first of all, of Bloomington, and did you go to Seymour just to kind of get the atmosphere of of where this guy grew up in in this small town? I went to Bloomington twice. I think Bloomington's probably the, the and, and Bloomington, you know, small town Indiana, small town Indiana. So I, I did two stints in Bloomington. And you just get the you get a real understanding of it, it, it is it is a small town. He stayed there. He didn't move to New York or LA. You wander around Bloomington. Everybody knows who he is. You, you wander in a bar in Bloomington, and they can tell you they'd seen him across the streets. And you walk into a bookshop. Someone in the bookshop's got a story about John Mellencamp doing this. John Mellencamp, John Mellencamp meeting the Dalai Lama in Bloomington. All, all these bizarre sorts of things. So the idea that, I, I mean, he kind of embodies that that small town America, Midwest America ethos. He'll tell you that the only difference is that Indiana is very much um, a red state and he's about as far and as opposite from a, from red as you can be in political yeah. terms. I also was curious about the vibe of a small town. We live in Los Angeles, so, and I don't yeah. think either of us has lived in a small town. And it's fascinating, you know, that the way you colored it. So you talked a lot about, or you wrote a lot about John's youth and how he was just kind of a, like a bad boy, you know, not so much into education and, you know, a lot about his family, which was, you know, is great to have that, that background, but how he developed into such a, such a, but like a thoughtful adult, he must've had the ability, the ability, the songwriting, the, the writing ability. It must've all been there for him to have turned into what he was, at least the way you describe like his his sessions with the musicians, you know, and about knowing exactly what he wants and understanding the music. Yeah, I, I think this, I think that's a really interesting point because I think if you if you talk to him about it, he will be, and and he does. He he very much says it's all about hard work. Anybody can do it with hard work, and there's no doubt he he worked really hard. You know, he really did apply himself to the business of making himself good. But I also think there has to be, like you said. It has to be there in some way, shape, or form. I, I think yeah, you have to be blessed in some way, shape, or form to be able to do that. And he says he taught himself. But um, I did an interview a long time ago with Rick Rubin. He was talking about working with Tom Petty, and he said you could. He said these people are kind of plugged into something that you and I aren't. He said you yeah. could be having a conversation with Tom Petty. He'd literally be talking to you. You'd be engaged in a conversation with him, and he'd suddenly go. He'd suddenly stop and start playing guitar. And, and he would explain that he'd pick something out of the ether. He'd, just, the, 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 he'd grasp whatever it was, this song or whatever's coming out of the ether. 
and then he, he would write a song in 10 minutes and people around Mellencamp talk about him doing the same thing and I think whatever he says he's trained himself to do it but I, I think there's the some whether it's blessed or gifted or whatever it is that you're able to tap into that kind of thing and you, you might be able to hone it and get better and better at it but I think it's probably there when you start yeah yeah, yeah well you touched on it uh, a little bit like his upbringing the, his parents had bongo parties can you explain what a bongo party is <laughs> I'm still not entirely sure myself what a bongo party. I think it is actually, it is exactly what it says. Like his dad had a set of bongos. People would come around the house, they'd be drinking music on, and the bongos would be passed around and people would play the bongos. It's I, I don't know that I've ever heard of the concept of a bongo party before or since, but, but that appears to be what it is. Sounds like a drum circle. Yeah. Like that, yeah. I think yeah. it is, yeah. So he was always around music. I mean, growing up. There was music in the family. You know, they went to Protestant church. I don't know how much music there was there, but I'm sure that, you know, that kind of has an impact. Um, And you kind of touched on, like, he had this thirst for, to discover discover music. He spent all his money on, on records and things like that. Yeah, and I think his um his, his half brother is his, his half brother's a, uh, a really important part of this because if I, I spoke to, to him, to Joe, he was the first one that started guitar. He didn't obsess over it or take it, but he, he, gave John some rudimentary lessons, gifted him the guitar. Joe Mellencamp, the brother, maintains that he's got the best voice in the family and, <laughs> and has always been the best singer. But, but he exactly said that John was just dogged about it. I think music, it's a weird thing that he never left Indiana, but I think in a way to escape from it creatively and be something else, that was the route he found out of it. And I think he probably understood from a really early age it was be that. He was, he was quite, a, quite a talented sportsman. He was quite a quick sprinter. He played... American football, but I, I don't think he's ever been. I don't think John is the sort of person who would work with team sports. I think the idea of uh, of conforming to what anybody else wants or doing what anybody else says or fitting in with the structure of 11, 15 other people was ever going to work for him. Sounds like the way you describe his personality, I mean, throughout the entire book, the way his personality is, is that there was no way he wasn't going to be successful in music. Tremendous amount of admiration and respect for him because I, I think he just didn't appear that he was going to be stopped. And, and you know, the, the first couple of records, the first three, four, five records, you know, he had all sorts, he was dropped from a record company, second record, record company refused to put out, third and fourth record, the, the, the record, the breakthrough record, American Fool, the real breakthrough record, the record company didn't want to release it. They didn't think Jack, they, they couldn't see Jack and Diane as a single. Um, they wanted him to put horns on it, et cetera, et cetera. And he, he stuck to his guns and did it his way. Like, there's a there's a great story in the book where they send an emissary from the record company down to the studio and he's attempting to explain why horns should be on the record. Uh, and John literally led him out the studio door and closed the door behind him onto the street. 
So he was always going to do it, but I, I think that that sort of determination to, to do it his way, to be who he was going to be, I think is the, is one of the great things that's admirable about him. One of my favorite quotes is from his, his grandfather, Speck, Grandpa Speck. I'll say it there. <laughs> if you're going to hit a cocksucker, kill him. And so I think that seemed, you've mentioned that a number of times in the book, and I'm sure that that was the way he looked at it was, uh, you know, you've you got to commit yourself to to something. And this is what he did. This is this is all he knew. He's like, all right, I'm all in. I'm either all in or I'm not in at all. And that's, you know, like, okay, this is going to be my life. I got to keep pushing. Yeah, I, I think, we, I mean, we mentioned his background. I think that that, I mean, that's almost like one of his, um, you might as well as, as inscribe that quote on tablets of stone because he, he he held on to what his grandfather said but he's, he's, I think all the men folk in the family the, the, the older men that he was sort of around and looked up to were were competitive but also pitted the kids against each other and themselves against each other and you know he's his brother said his half brother said to me you know second didn't count in the family no one you weren't patted on the back for coming second you, you were expected to win or to try to win his dad would hold these sort of he would make the the, the three brothers box against each other and sprint against each other and do all these kind of things. And he definitely carried that all the way through. It, the band members that you talk to right from the earliest, you know, um, Kenny Aronoff, who was the, the, who was the drummer for a long time of his band, would just tell me that, you know, you were made to do it over and over and over and over again. And it had to be perfect. And, and the band the band were just drilled to a ridiculous degree with rehearsals and, and, and all that sort of stuff. You know, he's not one of those characters who just sort of, you know, wings it or it just uh, he, he, he pushed everybody else around him as well well our hearts be like thunder I don't know why they don't explode you got your hands in my back pockets and Sam Cooke singing on the radio you say that I'm the boy who can make it those characters in a in a book like you say in a novel that he he pushes you as the or you pushed the reader right to the edge but his personality you know you you were always wondering where he was going to you know go off next and i think you mentioned kenny aronoff i i think i might have felt the most for him throughout the whole book yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> although obviously he did you know pretty well for himself afterwards I mean, he became a success yeah, on his own. One of the yeah. finest drummers yeah. in the world. I mean, yeah. I mean, there's no one like him, really. Yeah. I suppose like a lot of people, John's, you know, I, I would imagine uh, it, it, he's, he was difficult and challenging to work for. But like a lot of personalities and characters, like the people that do, I think they will all credit that, that he bettered them. I, I, Mike Wanchick, who's been with him pretty much since day one, will, will, said, you know, Kenny Aroff turned up with a massive, great drum kit and... and John didn't want that. He wanted somebody who could play simply spare drums. So he started piece by piece to take away 
the bits of the kits until it was down to the bare minimum. And then he had him play a style that was the bare minimum. And that became Kenny Aronoff's signature style. So I think there's, you know, Kenny's undoubtedly, you, you do feel sorry for Kenny at various intervals through the book. But, you know, I, I think if he, well, he did, he said, you know, he, he will credit John with, he, he owes a significant part of his career to what he got for playing in with John Mellencamp. Oh, no question. Probably for, for most of them, you know, yeah. I, I would say, but uh, just going through it, I bet like probably with any band or in any sport, you know, the growing pains, but he's hit the, the personality, John's personality, you, you made very clear mm-hmm. and throughout his whole <laughs> throughout his whole life. I mean, you also said in the book that um, I think he learned with his first band, there was, it was a democracy. You mentioned the, his first lesson was we can't have a democracy. There's only one, there's gotta be one guy in charge and that's, that's going to be me. Right. I think him and um, John and Bruce Springsteen, are, are, you know, they've sort of had parallel careers. I think they're working together now. I think they're quite close and they're very similar in that respect. You know, I think Bruce is perceived probably as more, amiable and easygoing but there's, there's only one person in charge of the east street band and mm-hmm. and you know it's not steve van zandt and i think it's it's exactly so you know i think his frustration with the, the, the first band was that they it, it took ages to even organize a show because there were six seven people voting on it and no, i think there's been one person voting on what john's doing for for 34 years and he hasn't done too bad yet yeah. <laughs> let's go back to kenny Aronoff about um and the drum sound i love uh, the story of Jack and Diane, how it you how it just came about, uh, just the whole story, um, which we can touch on in a second. But it was the Bee Gees who helped create this sound uh, by bringing in the yeah. Lindrums, right? <laughs> yeah, the, they were in Criteria Studios in Miami, and um, yeah, the Bee Gees are in the next studio, and and it's Albie Galuton who's the the, the Bee Gees producer. Mm-hmm. I, I think, if memory serves, they're working on Spirits Having Flown record. I think that's the record they were working on. I think there's two, three, four different versions of Jack Iron Dan that weren't working. And Albert Galutin just popped around with this drum machine and said, try that. I think Kenny Aronoff insisted on programming it if he was going to be sidelined for a drum machine because he, he'd famously been removed from the record before that. He didn't play on the record before that when he just joined the band. So he programmed the drum machine. And then Mick, uh, Mick Ronson of, of David Bowie fame, who was also shared a management with, um, with Mellon Camp, he turned up and it, it was his idea for the, the hand claps. And, and it, it, it's sort of, it's one of those rare songs that he's put together, almost like little bits being added along the way. The when you listen to it, it all sound like they were, they were naturally supposed to be there. If you listen to it now, it's, it's for the time. It's, it's, it's an extraordinarily weird record. Does, yeah. There's no actual chorus. There's all sorts of weird things going on. And, and, as I said, when the record company heard it, they just did not understand it at all. Didn't think it would amount to anything. But there was one concession, right? I mean, there was a plot twist to uh, to Jack and Diane. You want to touch on lyrically who Jack and Diane originally were? Yeah, originally it was a mixed race couple, and that was the point he was making. I think Jack was a a, a black American football player, and and that was the the point he was making that it was a mixed race couple, and and he was advised you might want to avoid that particular taboo at the, if you want to call it a taboo, at that particular time and he did remove that from the lyric and he's gone back to, i mean if you know the check it out video it was a mixed race couple dancing in that video that caused a bit of a storm and then and, and all this time later he's now uh, at work on a musical jack and diane um where i think they've reinstated that storyline that's they've sort of revived the original storyline so Originally, he was sucking on a cigarette, which makes sense, instead of a chili dog. How did that happen, or why? I don't understand. <laughs> that. I never understood sucking on a chili dog. 
I, 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 I think it's all those same things. I think that he's not, you know, John's not stupid. I think he knows which battles to fight and when. Yeah. And I think he was very much like, there would be compromises he was willing to make and he would understand making. And then there would be issues he was going to fight until he was, you know, you'd have to drag him out of the room. You could probably have hit him with a shovel and he'd still come back fighting. Over. Sucking on chili dog, outside taste freeze. Diane sitting on Jackie's lap, got his hands between his knees. Jackie say, hey Diane, let's run off behind the shade of trees. Dribble off those Bobby Brooks, let me do what I please. Say, oh yeah, life goes on long after the thrill of living is gone. Say, oh yeah, life goes on long after the thrill. Of living is gone to walk on I think the same thing with the name, you know, he didn't like being Johnny Cougar, but he accepted that as a necessary thing to, to you know, he was pretty much told, unless you change your name, you don't get a record deal. And I think he's he's known which battles to fight and when. You know, he he's not stupid, John, far from it. I did not know that story about how Cougar came about. I think you know the, the extraordinary thing that um, that he just he didn't know until he saw the album cover. Yeah, you know the, the album that was mocked up. That was the first time he knew that his name had been changed to Johnny Cougar, uh, and it took him it took him a long, long time to get rid of that name as well. Yeah, no one ever called him Johnny either. Uh, no. Yeah. No. no. We desperately need to take a break, so let's do that and be right back on the What's Up with Me podcast. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Welcome back to the What Difference Does It Make podcast and our guest, Paul Reese, talking about Mellencamp. 
uh, a great early story is I didn't, he played the whiskey. He opened up for the jam and yeah. uh, this was his showcase, but uh, I don't think it went that well. All sorts of things about that, that, that gig fascinate me. I mean, the, the fact that John was paired with the jam to start with makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> whoever came up with the idea of that, but the idea that, um, you know, I Need a Lover was obviously the one song that he'd, he'd had a sort of minor, it'd been a big hit in Australia. It, it, it had caused a minor sort of kerfuffle in, in America. Pat Benatar had done it. But the idea he came out in a raincoat and removed that and was was wearing his briefs. <laughs> and, and it's just, what on earth? You know, you, you see John Mellencamp now and think, it's, it's unimaginable that he would do that. But I, I think that it's that sense that, that, you know, that he was someone who was just desperate to do what it took right. to get where he to go or to, to make an impression. Also, he never got good reviews. I love these. This was back in the day when Rolling Stone just, they wrote whatever, like unfiltered exactly how they felt. Like, uh, like the first one, I, you know, I wouldn't buy a used car from, from this man. Anytime he opens his mouth, it oozes insincerity. No one writes reviews like that. Would you, I mean, I'm sure you could never do something like that or have you? <laughs> I, I may have occasionally. Stone Temple Pilots, I may be. Uh, but, <laughs> really? Um, <laughs> it's a really good point, I think, that, that era where there was that... I mean, it was a, it was a blood sport, wasn't it? And I, I think it made things... Whether people were right or wrong, it made... Magazines were more interesting in those days. Without sounding like a... Well, I do sound like an old man, but it made things more... Conf- the, that confrontational aspect to it, it made things more interesting and it made more, things more challenging. And, and John... John would, I, I guess, now would say that, it, that he wasn't affected by it, but you, you can bet that John had every one of those reviews filed away, knew exactly what had been written, knew exactly who'd written it, and he was absolutely determined to shut it back down the throat. you know, all over in the States, using the States as an example. What do you see as his appeal on like on the coasts? I mean, why, why did, why did we, we embrace him so much? He wasn't writing about our stories. I think there's two things I think. And, and, and you know, like all this, it really, they sound really simplistic, but the first thing is he wrote songs that when you heard them on the radio sounded great, just great songs. Yeah. And, and over here, we always had that thing. People were always, a certain, there was a certain line of critical thinking about Oasis, for example. Why did Oasis? Why this? Why that? Well, they wrote songs that a stadium can sing along to and the, the, the grasped you immediately. It sounds really easy to do that. It, it really isn't. It's really, really <laughs> difficult to write those universal songs. And I think the other thing about John, I think just instinctively people knew he was the real deal. He was authentic. He, he was unvarnished. He walked it like he talked it. 
I don't think he's an everyman because I think he's more complicated than that. I think there's much more to him than that. But you believed what he said. You believe when John was writing about American farmers, he knew what he was talking about. He, he understood what he was writing about. You know, when he wrote Small Town, he was a guy from a small town and that was about him. And I, I think that authenticity is a massive part of um, why he appealed across the board. Speaking of uh, writing about farming, we always knew he was involved with Farm Aid, but it was really, it was great to read the story about how he got involved with Farm Aid and, you know, how he took it. We just knew it as a, as a show, but to really read more about his feelings about it and the whole, you know, how they carried it across the, the country or across the heartland. But I think that it is incredibly important to him. And, you know, the, you know, lots of musicians have adopt causes. Some musicians pay lip service. To, to, some people are more involved than others. But, you know, he it's been half a lifetime's work for him. And uh, I think if, you know, I spoke to Karina Mulgar, who's the chief executive of Farmaid, and, um, you know, she'll tell you how he's obviously, he doesn't go and work in the office every day in the Farmaid office, but but he's he's tuned into what they're doing. He cares about what they're doing. If he... He'll hear something or read something, and he'll about farmers or an issue that he wants to get involved in. He'll respond to it, and he's very opinionated uh, uh, and very engaged. With what they do, you know, he's performed at virtually every farm gig. This be uh, he's reached out to other people to get them to come and play gigs, and he's stayed with that since 1985. So, you know, that that's a long commitment for, for one thing. on a wooden cross, blackbird in the barn. 400 empty acres that used to be my farm Grew up like my daddy did, my grandpa cleared his land When I was five I walked the fence while grandpa held my hand Rain on the scarecrow, blood on the plow This land for the nation, this land made me proud and Son, I'm just sorry there's no legacy for you now Rain on the scarecrow, blood on the plow Rain on the scarecrow all it took was uh, one sentence from Bob Dylan to uh, to put a, <laughs> send him into action. It was yeah, the 19, it was at eighty five, the Live Aid show where yeah yeah Dylan just said it'd be great if we did this for farmers. And yeah. you mentioned that that Geldof was pissed off about that. Is that correct? Yeah, I think there's been a lot of. I think Geldof there was a, a perspective at the time that that it was somehow unenlightened that it was a it was a statement about you know i think it was a bit of a yeehaw statement because it was about white american farmers and stuff like that and it, it wasn't meant that i don't think it believed for a second it was meant that way by dylan i think it was you know that that, that much media attention was focused on that issue focusing it across the board on issues that needed telling and there were stories in america that you know it, it was the era of reagan and there were american stories that also needed telling at that point and there were american communities that were under threat as well i don't think dylan i don't think john i don't think willie nelson or neil young were involved with farm aid because they disagreed with what was going on with live aid i think they, they were involved with it because they also felt that there were other battles that needed fighting as well that's a much better way to put it it, it was inspiring I think that that's, you know, I think, again, that, that thing about John, he does care about the communities and his own community and what he's got, you know, he's, he's been involved with Indiana University in Bloomington. He's donated to Indiana University. He's play, he plays gigs in and around Indiana. I think there's, as I said, when you go around Bloomington, he's, he, I think he's quietly done things for causes and people and things around Indiana that aren't publicised. So I think he's, he's someone who's, who values community, he's interested in community, he's engaged with community as well, so far as you can be. These are the things you want to know about your artists. I think that, again, you know, you, you sort of touched upon that, or you asked that at the start about why 
why I want to write about John. I think there's a lot of rock and roll, and I, I've done, there's a lot of rock and roll stories where it is the you know there's the there's the self-destructive element, there's the, the live fast die young element. There's all those sort of things. I think with John, there's a work ethic to John. There's a value system to John. For all of that, I think he's a good guy. I, I think he's a he's a really really good guy, and I think it's not often you get a t- chance to tell a story in that respect about a good guy one of the good guys and he's got his flaws and his rough edges and he's you know he's rough as a cob as he would describe it but i also think he is a good guy i, I think he's his heart's in the right place he's also a hell of a performer we saw i, I remember seeing him in i think it was the scarecrow tour and it blew me away like it was like it like a soul revival and he was dancing like i i mean i he won me over at that time like i rain on yeah rain on the scarecrow that was like the first album like oh okay this is a serious artist you know, I always thought he was like a, a wannabe Springsteen. And then I heard Scarecrow and like, oh, OK, this is something here. And then I went to see his show and like, this is wow, this guy is amazing. And this band is insane. That's how he won me over. Was that your thoughts as well when you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, again, it's that it's that old school where he, he won people over as well by going out and playing to people. You know, he went out and toured and toured and toured and he drilled the band. You know, you, you, I, I spoke to several members of the guys who were in the band back then and it, it was it was like they were training for an olympic sport yeah. to get ready to go and do those shows and and he would run around stage if he, if people were standing still he would be berating them on stage and and he pushed himself just as hard as well and um first time i'd ever been to america and he was on the road doing the scarecrow tour i, I didn't get to see him but you, you would hear on the radio station wherever you went people talking about this was the tour to see in america at that point and you know, John didn't tend to travel outside of America a lot, so I had to wait along. I, I think it was probably the, the, it would be early 90s, 91, 92, before he came over to the UK and saw him in the, and he was great. He was absolutely great. The, the other really interesting thing is him is how he's sort of gone from that sort of rock and roll performer to somebody who's much more of a sort of American folk artist now. Mm-hmm. And he's great in an entirely different way now. He's one of the very few artists who's matured and aged gracefully. He's done it with, you know, he managed that process really, really well and really smartly. Yeah, it could have been easy for him to become, you know, just an oldies act. And but he could play now he could he could play small town and Jack and Diane still. But, you know, kind of like Dylan, just kind of reinvent do uh, new arrangements that kind of fit his style now, make it com- interesting to him and still keep that audience that, uh, you know, not not the pop audience, but just an adult audience that. Uh, desires new music and to, to hear the, these these stories. He, he talks about Pete Seeger saying to him, um, Pete Seeger giving me a piece of advice saying, if you want to be, if you want to have longevity, keep it small. And there's a really interesting process that he that he sort of gets to the point where he decides to go and play theatres, that he's had enough of playing amphitheatres and to places that, you know, and partly, obviously, as you get older, you know, you do have to scale things. Most artists do have to scale things down. But I think also there's an understanding there that in the records he's written, what he's writing about, the style of his records, he's not attempting to court anything other than an audience that has a similar interest and a similar age to him. He's not attempting to play down or dumb down. You know, you go into the... I love the Rolling Stones, but there's, Mick Jagger is still attempting to, to pull off the act of convincing you that he's not a 70-odd-year-old man up on stage. And John doesn't do that. John, you know, he's 70 this year. And, and he, he acts it and he writes about things that interest him at that mm-hmm. age. And I think that's a, he's been very, very smart about that. And, very, and you know, the, there aren't many artists that do that and pull that up. I think Dylan's done it well, um, but there aren't many that do it. 
one of my favorite songs actually is Minutes to Memory. Like when I was in college, that was like my mantra, like suck it up and tough it out and be the best you can. I used to say that in the morning, you know, you are young and you are the future. So suck it up, tough it out and be the best you can. As a kid, that's what I sang because, you know, there's something. But now you listen to that song and it's it's reversed. I, I look at it as the old guy, you know, it's, that's why the song's brilliant. So it's aged well, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think he sings it now. I think is is he sings it now from the, he, when he first wrote, he was obviously the young guy on the bus. Yeah. Taking the, I think he sings it now and performs it now as the old guy, giving the young guy advice. So he's, he's kind of flipped it as well. I mean, yeah, the best songs are ageless anyway, aren't they? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. There ain't a cute dog in the twilight's last gleaming He said, son, it sounds like rattling old bones This how is long, but I know some that are longer I sun up tomorrow, I guess I'll be home To the hills of Kentucky, cross the Ohio River The old man kept talking about his life and his times He fell asleep with his head against the wind an honest man's pillow is his peace of mind This world offers riches Riches with words I don't just stop in those uncertain things Get down a minute, ten minutes to memories That's the way the dreams we had planned You are young and you are the future So suck it up and tough it out Be the best you can more thing about just songwriting he had a song he had a great songwriting partner george green he was kind of like the i don't know like bernie toppin or i don't know they they were they worked together and it they just had a falling out i guess or what what's the story behind george green is this, this guy that, I, I, that pushed him you know create some wonderful I, songs I, I love george green as a character because he's kind of the the, the bookish bespectacled geekish guy in class I mean, they were, you know, they were at high school together. They, they went to high school together in Seymour. And um, George sort of hung around them, but he was always the guy that was, you know, he didn't play sports. He was, and, and it was only when Mellencamp was, um, he, he made a couple of records and, and oh, it was just before he made his first record. That, that George, he, he ran back into George Green, who was working in a convenience store. Got into conversation. George Green said he'd started writing songs or writing lyrics, and then they started writing these songs together. Neat ne- and they on George Green's bed in George Green's house, and it is—it's it's a weird sort of—it's um, kind of like an of mice and men version of um, Elton John and Bernie Taupin. These two, you know, <laughs> the, the, the falling out. You know, I think John John's is more like I don't think there's any big dramatic bust. I think it's over a period of years. George Green probably became more, more protective over the lyrics he wrote and saw them being delivered in one way. John wanted to do them in another way. And the inevitability with these things is, as, as we said earlier, there's, there's only one there's only one way it gets done. And I think uh, it, it eventually was, it, 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 John got tired of having to explain himself and, and, and that was the end of, of George Green and that relationship. But I think it, it's, you know, George Green's written some fabulous lyrics. They, they work perfectly. Some of George Green's best mm. lyrics work perfectly with and and his treatment of them. They, uh, they just complement each other perfectly. Yeah, your life is now crumbling down. Yeah, Rain on the Scarecrow. Just I love each and every one of those songs. It's just did they trade lyrics or was it all? Do you know if George wrote most of the lyrics for those songs or or how that uh, that wor- that process uh, worked? 
I think George wrote the lyric and John edited accordingly and would go back and say, not sure about that, not sure about that, and it would be re-edited. So I think it, it, it was... It, it was a bit more collaborative probably than Elton John and Bernie Taupin. I think Bernie Taupin writes lyrics and Elton John sets song to it from, from what I can gather. I think there's probably a little bit more collaboration and editing going on. But but they start, yeah, with... Um, and, and there's Human Wheels as well, which um, was based on a, the eulogy that um, uh, George Green, I think it was his father's funeral, gave it his father's funeral. Yeah. And that was put to, a, to, to music as well. So the, there's, there's a really... In, uh, just one of those interesting collaborations and I guess from two people that had to know each other well and had to trust each other as well I enjoyed reading about he. He, um, he seemed a little softer. <laughs> I enjoyed getting the soft side. Hearing uh, you interviewed both uh, two of his daughters. Yeah, I, I interviewed Teddy Joe and Justice. Yeah. Yes, and their rela- it, sound, it seemed like always a nice relationship. Yeah, I think the best you can say. Both of them said, independent of each other, said that whenever in their lives that they were not sure, or they wanted some advice, or reassurance, or counsel they would always pick up the phone or go and see him. And I think you've, you've done pretty well as a parent if you get if you get to that point. I, I love the fact that one of my favourite bits in the book is, I think it's um, Justice's 16th birthday party, and it, he, he catches um She'd smuggled a, a bottle of beer out of the garage and was sitting with some friends. They're, he's got this um, Defusky Island. He's got a, a house on Defusky Island. They're, they're out on the beach there having a beer, and he catches them. And he cancels the party that they've got planned for the next day, the big 16th birthday party. He has her cleaning the house. And so, because obviously he was quite rebellious in his youth and fought against his father's um, big tax and all the rest of it. I said, do you ever share that information with him? He said, it was very much like, do as I say, not as not as I might have done. <laughs> None of them got handouts. It wasn't, you know, you were expected to work for what you got. I, I think there's a respect for him for that. And I think they both feel that they were better served because of that, however difficult it might have seemed at the time. Every interview was the same way, kind of like, uh, you know, just immense respect. He worked me to the bone. I was miserable during the recording session. I was, mis- I hated every second of it and I will do it again. <laughs> you know, they're just devoted to John yeah. Milk. They believe in this man, which is, I mean, that's, what you want i guess i guess it's you know it, it's the nature of people that you you follow whether it be you know that like whether you a lot of them described it i mean kenny aronoff described making the american fool as like going to vietnam 
so that there is a sense of go this sense of go to war and battle and the nature of the person that you follow i didn't speak to anybody who he didn't respect him you know they might have had disagreements with him they might have not liked the way he went about certain things but i also think the thing that you have to remember with that and i think it's sometimes lost when when it, when you're talking about ex-band members or people who've played with people who, who, who tend to have these opinions at the end of the day it's john's name above the marquee and and every it's his responsibility and and he's the guy that carries the guy he's the guy that's had to write songs he's the guy that has to go out and sell them and and he's the guy whose career stands or fall on what's happened so i think you know that amount of responsibility and pressure also has an impact on the way you interact with other people as well i i love that he's been able to attach himself to to projects that where you're scratching your head like you know he he did the uh plays he worked with stephen king do, he's doing musical he wrote a screenplay and this guy i mean he just goes like he he sets his mind to something and it's just like oh well, i'll write a screenplay i mean he doesn't does he he just goes right in and it's a hundred you know just full hog right full hog and i'll direct it and then directing right. oh yeah and he directed it <laughs> yeah i'll direct this too yeah he's always been lacking in confidence self-confidence um <laughs> I think that's that, 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 you know, that's that thing that we're, like we said earlier, that, that, that he will turn around and tell you that anybody can do what I do with yeah. a little hard work and application. I think that's not, you know, not because he's, he, he is, I'm trying to think of, he's, he's a very, very good painter. He's a very, very good artist. He, he, he genuinely isn't the, you know, we, we all know that, you know, Bob Dylan has, has tried his hand at, that are Ronnie Woods and the, the, the you know the, the musician painters uh, and it, it is very much a musician's done that. John, it's obviously helped him being John Mellencamp. But you speak to people, you know, I spoke to the, the, the woman who exhibits him in New York, the gallery in New York. He would have had a career as a painter. He would have been noticed as a painter, irrespective of of, of what he did. You know, he was the last exhibit he had in New York was alongside Robert Rauschenberg. He would sit on that level that he's unique in that respect like you know that, that, that he, he turns his hands to all these things i think that makes him unique how creative he is and the fact that i don't think his his brain is ever still you know he's a 70 year old man who's still trying to do multiple things he hasn't sat back put his feet up and, and entered his dotage playing the hits he hasn't done that he, he's yeah. constantly trying to stretch himself which i think is again admirable you tell a story about his his first exhibit in New York. It was a co-exhibit, I think, with Miles Davis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's funny as as the reader, and you you know what it entails when you're opening an art exhibit. You know, if you've been to an opening, that it's sort of a you know cocktail party. He seemed surprised at what it turned out to be and the people that showed up, and also the names obviously were 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 the draw. But he seemed you know so disgusted and horrified at the idea of an art opening that he left early? I think, I think he was very conscious that, um, you know, he's, he's aware that being John Mellencamp, being a rock star, helps you get a foot in other doors, mm. I think. But he was very conscious that he wanted to do, he wanted his painting to be, t- he wanted to be judged in the same way. He, you know, he went back and took classes. He went back and, 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 and worked with, with, other, with painters and took tutorials and things like that. I think he felt that first opening that the Miles Davis one was, you know, they put a billboard on Sunset Strip and that doesn't happen for, for the normal, you know, your first art exhibition, wow. you don't get a billboard on Sunset I think he felt he was being marketed as a rock star uh, and, and he wanted to be judged more as a, I think he felt in retrospect, it was a mistake to have done that early on. And the later things that he did when he exhibited, there were small things, you know, he did 
things in Midwestern galleries in Texas and things like that. And he sort of built his way back up to having a, a New York gallery and a New York exhibition. I think it's exactly the same thing. It was like going out on the road and touring. He, he paid his dues before he, he went and headlined Madison Square Garden. It, it, I think he viewed it in exactly the same way. You touched on like he felt like he was actually this exhibit with, uh, with Robert Rauschenberg. That's that was like his okay. You're legit. Like once mm. he once he made that, that was his Madison Square mo- Garden moment. I think it was a massive thing. I mean, I think the first New York exhibit was a big thing. But I think when you're placed on that level, you know, you're talking about you know one of the significant figures in American art. I guess it's like if he'd written his first novel, and they said you're going to do a book reading with Don DeLeo or something like that. You know, mm-hmm. you, you, you're placed on that level, and you're seen on that level. It, it's a big thing. You know, you can't imagine. Bless Ronnie Wood, but but nobody's going to be exhibiting Ronnie Wood's paintings with Jackson Pollock, for example. That's that's not going to happen. John's work stands up to that. It it, it does stand up to that. You, there's fair. You, you can read. You know, everybody's got. You can read critics in the New York Times, and I, I think he's respected for for what he does as an artist and the way he's gone about doing it. The fact that that exhibit exhibition didn't look or sound or wasn't ludicrous and hugely unbalanced is is a testament to that. I think. Do you have a favorite piece? at all of uh, of his artwork the last time i went to interview him he was complete it's, it's a it's a portrait of um of elaine that he'd uh, you know his mm. his ex-wife that he was doing uh, and he'd been doing it for years and years and years and uh, a giant canvas and and really really striking i, I like all his portraits i think it's amazing mm. I, I, love, I love some of the portraits he does a couple of self-portraits are great as well the way he sees himself through right. his own eyes is very interesting. There's a, there's a darkness and a, a um, yeah, an edge to those pictures that's really interesting as well. You say he's disciplined as a as a painter. Is he disciplined as a as a writer, a songwriter? Does he is he set aside some time to? I don't know. What is, what is his daily schedule like? I think painting is his is his obsession. I mean, I, I think yeah. he's he's as obsessed with music and what he does. But I think he he goes and paints every day. But he he has that the mantra he has now is create something every day so he, he makes furniture as well in the, the art studio certainly the one in bloomington that there's a guitar there there's an electric guitar and acoustic guitar in there and he says when the muse strikes him for a song he puts the paintbrush down picks the guitar up yeah. and writes a song i think he, he said he's he's always open to that he's open to creating all the time and he, that's how he's disciplined himself to be open and available whenever you know, if the muse strikes into paint, he'll paint. If there's a song that's burning to get out, he's open to doing that. He, he, he claims that you can teach yourself to do that. I'm not entirely sure that's true. He said it often, you know, his life, he said, if you can have an artist's life, you have to create every day. And that's what he tries to do. And he was good at sports. Okay. I guess you can have everything. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's a really, uh, in some ways he's really irksome because it's like, if, if right. you, you know, most most musicians are not good at sports, but he was, he was quick. He played football and, you know, they had this um, flag football league with the, there's a great story that his, his half brother Joe tells that, um, you know, they, they played flag football. So John had a flag football team with his band and he invited Joe. Joe was, a, was working as a fireman in Cincinnati. So he invited Joe to bring the firemen down to play them. And the first year they come to Indiana, the firemen and Joe uh, and John and the band beat them. And after the game, John whisks them all back to the house. There's a big barbecue, there's, there's beers, there's drinks, there's music. And the following year, he invites them back for a game. And, and the firemen decide at this point that they're not going to lose. They're actually going to win, and they do win the game. Uh, and there's no barbecue, there's no music, there's no invite back to the house. 
<laughs> no, he, he takes, even, even again, flag football, you know, second isn't good enough. Sore loser. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's the other way of putting it, yeah. But that, okay, so then one of my favorite quotes about songwriting that, that's in there, it says uh, that John says, the essence of being a songwriter is to show some humility. You want something that goes into people's hearts. And I'm still hoping to write that song. There's a number of songs where I think he's reached that. Uh, what are some of your favorites? It's interesting because I, while I was right working on the book, I did a, a Mellencamp playlist that <laughs> I could just play when I was driving anywhere and doing that. And there's 25, 30 songs on that. And they're all knockouts. I, I think Pink Haze is obviously Rain on Scarecrow, and it's the memories we've mentioned. I think there's some of the latest songs I just think, I, I think, um, I, I love We Are the People from The Lonesome Jubilee. I think that's a great mm-hmm. song. And then when you get later on, Rural Root, the song that's on Freedom's Road, I think is an amazing song. Uh, just a, a stunning piece of work. Gina on, on Life, Death, Love and Freedom is an amazing song. Um, what Kind of Man Am I on, on Say Clans Neil, please. I think a lot of the songs, for want of a better term, the dark songs or the subject matter songs, or the, I, I just think he writes great folk songs, great you know, spiritual songs. Uh, what Kind of Man Am I is an amazing song, a, 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 an incredible song. Um, and they're possibly not as well known, but they're, you know, breathtaking. My words don't know the truth They flutter as I speak The sickness I feel under my belt Is the disdain I have for me I've asked you to stand tall but it's me who's falling down A better man I'd like to be Can't find my way home now So what kind of man am I That never looked up to see the sky And every word I say Has come back to haunt Every day So here I stand alone Crippled on my cane The coward I've become The loser in the game Okay, so the, yeah, so Springsteen, Dylan, Petty, Seeger, Mellencamp is, is, he, <laughs> is he up there? Is he on the Mount Rushmore of American songwriters? What do you think? Yeah, I, I don't think there's any doubt. I mean, I think I think he would have been he would have been seen as a great songwriter if he'd stopped after Lonesome Jubilee. I think just on what was on uh, her Scarecrow and um, Lonesome Jubilee, three knockout, and then yeah. you, you forget how big those you know three knockout records in a row. I think Big Daddy's a great record, but I, I think from the point he left, he stopped trying to be to write radio hits. And I think Freedom's Road's probably the bridge from that record. I think Freedom's Road onwards, he's made three or four remarks. I think he's had a great, great late period. And those records, I think he said, I think Life, Death, Love and Freedom, you could stand that next to to any American record of the last 20, 30 years. It's a phenomenal piece of work, an an amazing record. And no better than this is not that far behind. Um, So I think on on the balance, yeah, there's, there's not many songwriters that you could sketch out 30 40 songs across that amount of time and he's still writing great records and testing himself so i, I don't think there's any i think johnny cash i think johnny cash 
he had a message passed that Johnny Cash thought he was one of the great American songwriters. And if he if it's good enough for Johnny Cash, I think it's good enough for anybody else. I think, yeah, definitely. He's, he's up there. Your career could end at that point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you'd, you'd be pretty happy with that. I think <laughs> you'd take that. Is there going to be a Jack and Diane musical? Is that ever coming out? Yeah, um, the last time I spoke, to, I, I, I'd spoken to various people involved in that. They were doing read-throughs just before the pandemic in New York. They'd done read-throughs and castings for it. So I think work on that has gone on in the scripting and all the rest of it. So it, it was... Like everything else, it will have been moved back. I, he described it as wanting to do something like Tennessee Williams on the stage. So he, you know, he, he doesn't he doesn't set his bar low or the yeah. challenges. <laughs> but I think yeah, that that's I, I think work on that has continued. I think that will probably be in the next twelve to eighteen months. That'll see the light of day. The Mellencamp story continues. He, he will because he's a crusted old goat as well. Because obviously he's retired three times from music. Um, at the last count. I think that's the thing with him. It's like sort of about aging. He's not one of those people who's gone into his dotage uh, and rested on his laurels. He's. I would wage if you sat him down now, he would tell you he still fervently and genuinely does believe he's got his best record still in it uh, and he's still to make it. And he's, like you said about, you know, wanting to make the song, that he still believes he's got to write that song. So I think he, he told me once he... He'd envisaged how he wanted to go, and he wanted to be laid out on a board in the in the living room, and all this sort of stuff. So until they're doing that, I think he will be trying to do the best thing he's ever done, and that's probably what sustains him and keeps him going. Suck it up and tough it out. Yeah. So you, you have answered my question about why why you chose to write about him. All right. So yeah, the book Mellencamp. This is out now. And uh, yeah, thank you for for this book. It's uh, it was really nice to spend some time with John Mellencamp and learn all about his life and he's quite an inspiration so, so thank you for that appreciate and it and you thank you for coming on to talk about it that was a that well, was thank, fun thank you for having me on. Oh, yeah. you've ta- you've given us way too much time uh it was wonderful so thanks a lot and uh, best of luck with this book and uh yeah look forward to some more from you okay thanks very much folks thanks uh, paul just, all right cheers okay holly so do you have a greater appreciation for john mellencamp I really do. I really genuinely do. I loved reading this book. And he, as I said during the podcast, I was, I've been a, a, you know, a moderate fan. I wasn't so familiar with his later, uh, you know, the music he's created later in life. I really loved learning his backstory. The book was really well written. It was great to spend a time reading this book and learning all about John Mellencamp and what drives him. What drives him is basically John Mellencamp drives himself. No one, <laughs> no one tells John Mellencamp what to do. That's what I learned. Um, what drives us, Holly? This podcast drives us, I think, right? Yes. Every Friday, new episodes. If this is your first time, please subscribe. We also have a wonderful YouTube channel that Holly moderates. Tell us all about that, Holly. Well, thanks. Thanks for that compliment, Dave. Yes, I I am posting clips, outtakes from our interviews daily. So come back, check it out, subscribe. And uh, you can also find us on social media, WDDIM Podcast. And thank you for listening. We're also a member of the Pantheon Podcast family. Yes, they have some wonderful podcasts up there. Uh, PantheonPodcast.com. Check out what they've got. It's not just what differences it is. But, you know, after you're done with us, you can see what else is going on there. So until next week, this is Dave. This is Holly. Check you later. Over and out. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.